Greetings. You are about to hear one of a multi-part series on the dedication of Solomon's Temple, entitled Restore the Glory, by myself, Dan Augsburger. I shared these presentations in the fall of 2015 in the Stanbrough Park SDA Church in Watford, England, which is a northern suburb of London. In this series, we look at the construction and the dedication of Solomon's Temple. In doing so, however, we compare the building and construction of that temple with the prior construction and dedication of the first tabernacle in the wilderness and the subsequent construction and dedication of the second temple, which was constructed after the exile. We will also look at the construction and the dedication of the temple of our hearts. I believe you will learn much from these presentations and will be blessed. I hope you'll be able to hear all of them. They can be found at my website, discipleheart.com. If you have further questions or want to communicate with me for some other reason, you can write me at path to prayer, P A T H number two prayer, path to prayer at gmail, G M A I L, gmail.com. Path to prayer at gmail.com. Once again, this is Dan Augsburger. I appreciate your taking the time to listen, and I pray that you will be blessed. Good evening again. That's better. Uh, I don't have the loudest voice, so I do enjoy microphones. Anyway, I'm so glad that you came. You endured the, the rain. I guess that's what's to be expected this time of year. We've been enjoying the nice weather earlier. But uh, I've enjoyed the moments we've spent together. I think the Lord has been here. And uh, not because of what I've done, but because has, Jesus has chosen to, chosen to be with us. So let me say a, a brief word of prayer before I say anything else. Father in heaven, we want to claim this place for you right now. I thank you for each person that has come. They've come to hear from you. They've come to be fed by you. You're both the light of the world and the bread of life. Father, might they not be disappointed. Please use me this evening. Empty me of myself and anything that I would have a, that would detract or hinder your Holy Spirit from working. And take my words and reshape them into that which would be a blessing to them. Do this for Jesus' sake. Thank you in advance. In his name. Amen. In a little red book called Notes and Letters, the statement is made when the students in our schools learn to choose God's will, they will find it easy to do his will. And then somewhere else it says, when we learn to love God's will, it's easy to do God's will. There's a, there's a connection between our love for God and the, the ways of God and our ability to obey God. A missionary that I have uh, great admiration for uh, were a husband and a wife that went to China by the name of Rosalind and Jonathan Goforth. Uh, she was from England originally, but the family had moved out and they lived in uh, Montreal briefly, and then they went to Toronto. Jonathan actually grew up in London, Ontario, and eventually decided that he wanted to go to uh, Canada. And there he studied his Bible. He was in a seminary. I think within the first week that he was there, I think the first weekend, he began working in, the, uh, in certain sections of Toronto, busy working for Jesus from the very beginning. And one of the things that you learn when you study church history is that those who accomplish much for God are quick. You know, they get to a place and they look for opportunities to serve God, and that's a wonderful thing. Anyway, so there he met Rosalind, and they made the decision to go as missionaries uh, to China. 
And so they went and had many, many adventures. It's, it's an interesting situation where they went and they packed everything up. And within just a few weeks, they lost all of their belongings, either due to a fire or a flood. I don't remember which came first. And later in the mission service, they once again lost everything. And as we're going to learn in our story this evening, they also lost quite a few children. But uh, they were people who were committed to serving God, and they were going forward. And uh, at that time, the work in China was progressing slowly from the coastal areas, where it was a little bit safer on several levels, including the area of health, because there the families were a little bit more uh, educated as to contagious uh, and communicable diseases. And... Um, the setting of our story is where Jonathan wants to move to the interior to work more. And I have this from uh, her recounting her experience. She says, after the boxer experience, when so many uh, missionaries were persecuted and, 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 and many died, my husband returned to China in 1901, and with my children I left in the summer of 1902. Um, we decided to travel to Honan, and while we were traveling, uh, we traveled for 24 days on a riverboat inland. During those long, quiet days on the riverboat, my husband unfolded to me a carefully thought-out plan for future mission work. He reminded me that at our old station there were now six missionaries. It was well-staffed and it wasn't really necessary for us to stay. He felt that the time had come when we should give ourselves to the evangelization of the great regions north and northeast of Chengche, or however that's pronounced, and that the main station, now fully equipped, no longer needed us as before. He felt that the time had come when we should give ourselves to regions which up to that time had been scarcely touched for the gospel because of lack of workers. His plan was that we, husband and wife and the children, uh, would go and live and work among the people. To make this possible, we would rent a native compound, we would work for a month, plant a church, leave a local elder, and then we would go to another area, plant another church in one month, and they would go month by month to a different place in that region, planting church after church. They believed in quick results. Um, and, uh, and so he, he made this proposal to her, but she writes, what this proposition meant to me can scarcely be understood by those unfamiliar with China and Chinese life. Smallpox, diphtheria, scarlet fever, and other contagious diseases are chronic epidemics and China, outside their parts ruled by foreigners, is absolutely devoid of sanitation. By that time, four of our children had already died. To take the three little ones then with me into such conditions and danger seemed literally like stepping with them over a precipice. But on the other hand, I had the language and the experience for just such work. The need was truly appalling, and there was no other woman to do it. In my innermost soul, I knew that this was the call of God. But I would not pay the price. My one plea in refusing to enter that life was the risk to the children. Again and again, my husband would urge me, please, let us go. The safest place for myself and the children was the path of duty, that I could not keep them in our comfortable home in Changte, but God could keep them anywhere. Still, I refused. Just before reaching our station, he begged me to reconsider my decision. When I gave a final decision, his only response was, I fear for our children. You see, he believed that God could take care of the children best where God wanted the family, not where it seemed safest so far as they were concerned. 
The very day after reaching home, our dear Wallace was taken ill. For weeks we fought for his life. At last the crisis passed, and he began to recover. Then my husband started off alone on his first trip. He had been gone only a day or two when our precious Constance, a year old, was taken down with the same disease that Wallace had. From the first, there seemed little or no hope. The doctors, the nurses, and all the mission circle joined in the fight for her life. Her father was sent for, but arrived just as she was losing consciousness. A few hours later, as we were kneeling around her bedside waiting for the end, my eyes seemed suddenly open to what I'd been doing. I had dared to fight against Almighty God. In the moments that followed, God revealed himself to me in such love and majesty and glory that I gave myself to him with unspeakable joy. Then I knew that I had been making an awful mistake and that I could indeed safely trust my children to him wherever he might lead. One thing only seemed plain, that I must follow where God should lead. I saw at last that God must come first. Before the precious body was laid away, preparations were being made for a first trip as a family. She asked the question then, was God faithful to the vision he'd given me? Or did he allow the children to suffer in the years that followed, when months each year were spent with him right out among the people? As I write this, 18 years have passed since we started on that first trip, and none of our children died. Never had we as little sickness as during that life. Never had we as much evidence of God's favor and blessing in a hundred ways as may be gathered from the definite testimonies that follow. Without one exception, every place in which we stayed for a month and opened as my husband had planned became in time a growing church. And much to my surprise, I was able to give much more attention to my children. Truly, God's way was the best way. And so, brothers and sisters, as we begin our time this evening, I want to ask you the question, if God shows you his will, or if he is showing you his will, are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to pay the price? Let's spend some quiet time talking to God about where we stand in terms of our surrender. Thank you. Once when I was in India, I had the privilege of talking to some young adults about marriage. Uh, there were three couples, as I recall, and then some other singles. And... Uh, Two of the couples were actually a, a Seventh-day Adventist and someone of a Hindu religion. They were studying the Bible. And I talked with them about Ephesians 5 and the, the wonderful picture that is given there of the marriage. You know, I talked about how the husband's job description is to love his wife the same way that Jesus loved the church. And, uh, and I talked about Christian love in the context of the famous chapter in Corinthians on love. And, uh, you know, what it meant when you have a husband who treats you like 1 Corinthians talks about. And I remember talking to one of the, the Hindu young women who later said she always wondered what it would mean to be married to a Christian. And she said she cried. She had no idea it could be so precious and so wonderful. Now, we all know the truth is, is that we don't always live up to what we should. But the point is, is that when we really live for Jesus, there is something beautiful, truly beautiful. And this evening, we want to talk about another phase of the, uh, 
of the, the building and the dedication of the temple. We're going to talk about the first part of the dedication of the temple this evening, and that is when Solomon goes off to, to get the ark, which obviously contains the Ten Commandments. Something so important that, 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 that he had to get it, that God's glory would not return until it came. And so uh, with that in mind, let's, let's, let's look a little bit at what the Bible says on that. If you want to, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, rather 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1 to 2. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, 1 to 2. It says there, So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold, and put all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasures of the house of God. So Solomon first brought everything you know, that David had, had prepared, the things that were there. And now in verse 2, Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is... Zion. Okay? Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which was at the seventh month. And so all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark into the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy, holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Now there's some very, very significant things that we observe there. First of all, that the temple was not complete until the ark was brought back. And it says specifically that the elders and the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, all of those people joined together in bringing the ark back. And I think it's a wonderful thing, and you find in the Bible when those who are the chief men and the, and the fathers, etc., that they are the first, they're the ones at the head of the list saying, let's bring this back, let's reestablish this the way that it should be. Very, very appropriate. And then it says the Levites took up the ark. I want to talk with you just a little bit about the history of the ark because it is very instructive about how we should relate and obey God. If you want to, turn in your Bibles now to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel. It says there, this was when, uh, in verse 1, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. They were being defeated. They didn't know what to do, and they said, Well, let's go get the ark, and let's bring that ark here so that it would help us to gain a victory. So in verse 4, They sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. 
And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. They were excited. They were pleased. They believed that somehow the presence of the Ark would turn things around. Verse 6, Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. Notice that. They recognized that when the ark came, that God had come into the presence of the camp. And so they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Even though the ark was there, the presence of the ark did not have a magical power when God's people were not obeying God. In fact, as you continue, it says in verse 11, also the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. It was a sad day. And remember when Eli was given the news, he fell over backwards and he broke his neck. He realized that something terrible had happened. Well, the Philistines didn't have such a good experience with the ark, did they? Um, they first took it to Ashdod. We read of that in chapter 5, verse 2, where it was taken into the temple of Dagon. It says, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when they arose early in the morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And as you know, it happened again. And, uh, and so they became afraid. And... Uh, God was not happy with what was going on. In verse 6 it says, But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them. In other words, he really persecuted them uh, with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And the people recognized that, that the presence of God was not only a blessing, but in their cases it was a curse. They said, It must not stay with us. So they sent and gathered and said, Let us carry the ark away to Gath. And they did that in verse 8. And uh, so it was that after they carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against that city with a very great destruction, verse 9. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. Therefore the citizens of Gath sent it on to Ekron, in verse 10. And so it was, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought us the ark of God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. They found that the ark of God was not something that they wanted. So they sent, in verse 11, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors and the city, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. It was a very difficult time for the Philistines. Notice what they did, and this is most interesting. They called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. 
they had the good sense to call the priest of their gods and say, how should we send this ark back? And they responded, verse 3, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering, then you'll be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, well, what is the trespass offering? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land, etc. It's interesting that the priest of those pagan idols, those pagan gods, gave instructions, send the ark back with these tumors and with these golden rats as a way to, I believe in their mind, to appease the God of heaven. And they said, why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians? Verse 7, now therefore make a new cart, take two milk cows which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to the cart, and take their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold which you're returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. Then send it away and watch if it goes up by the road to its own territory to Beth Shemesh. Then he's done us this great evil, but if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. Then the men did so. And notice what happened. They took the two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord in the cart and the chests with the golden rats and the images of their tumors. Then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemesh and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. I used to work at a farm at Andrews when I was younger. And they would have uh, the cows. It's a very large farm with several hundred cows. And, and, and when they would, a, a mother would have her babies, they would separate the mother right away. And the mothers weren't happy. They would, they would make noise. They'd be lowing. They would be uh, mooing for their babies. And I remember one time seeing a cow, a very large cow, literally run and jump a fence to get back to her baby. And that's a lot of cow to go over a fence. But she was so intent on getting back to her little one and therefore, when we read this story about how these cows went straight, not going to the right or to the left, but yet lowing, you know, it speaks to the fact that there was a power driving them and conducting them forward. The cows headed straight back. Well, the Philistines had had the ark for seven months, okay? And so it came back to Beth Shemesh, and unfortunately the people chose to look at the ark, and, and some people died. And so they asked the people of Kiriath-Jearim in verse, chapter 7, verse 1, to take the ark, and they did, and they took it to the, to the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, a Levite, uh, to keep the ark of the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 1. And it says it remained there a long time. It was there 20 years. It's a long time. The ark was given to someone to take care of. Okay? It was there, and, and other things took place. Um, but eventually, David decided that he wanted to bring it back, and so now we have to turn from there all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we read there in verse 1, And David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, 
And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah, or Baal Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out. And uh, went be, and Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir wood and harps on stringed instruments, etc. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became afraid, and he sent the ark to a man's house by the name of Obed-Edom. Now then, David was trying to honor God in bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. But how had God instructed them to send the ark back? If you want to look at Numbers chapter 4. Look at Numbers chapter 4. Numbers chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 5 to 6. It says, And when the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his son shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of badger skins and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue, and they shall insert its poles. Okay? So they were to take down a covering and cover it, first with the the plain covering, a covering of badger skins, and then spread over that a a cloth wholly blue. And then in verse 9 we find... Actually, Numbers chapter 7, verse 9. It says, But to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things which they carried on their shoulders. Okay? The sons of Kohath were to carry on their shoulders the ark. There was no such thing as taking the instruments of the, of the tabernacle, the ark, on a new cart. Where did David learn to take the ark on a cart. He learned it from the Philistines. And where had they gotten the idea? From the priest of their religion. Had their priest been sincere in doing it? Yeah. They had been sincere in doing it. And this is what uh, we read. Um, This is what we read. David and his people had assembled to perform a sacred work. And let me just read the verse again. It says, somewhere in here. Well, it's okay. David and his people had assembled to perform a sacred work, and they had engaged in it with glad and willing hearts. But the Lord could not accept the service because it was not performed in accordance with his directions. They were willing. They were willing to serve God. It says 30,000 of the chief people came out. The Philistines, now I'm reading again, the Philistines who had not a knowledge of God's law had placed the ark upon a cart when they returned it to Israel and the Lord accepted the effort which they made. They didn't know better and because they didn't know better, they were trying to respect God as they understood respect to a deity and God accepted that. But the Israelites had in their hands a plain statement of the will of God in all these matters, and their neglect of these instructions was dishonoring to God. 
To those that don't know better, they show respect in the way they understood. But to those who, of us who know better, it dishonors, it is rebellion against God. And what amazes me is that 30,000 people came out and they joined in, they all had access to the scripture, but apparently they all figured that someone had studied or that it didn't matter. But when God became involved, it did matter because when God says something, we need to obey. My brothers and sisters, there is too much of a tendency today to try to learn from others how to serve God. My brothers and sisters, if God has shown us something better, if we want to know the blessings of God, we need to go back to the source. Did you hear me? We need to go back to the, to the source. Anyway, as I said, the people that assembled to move the ark and did it gladly, but the Lord could not accept their service. What showed respect for the Philistines, as I said, was disrespectful on the part of the Israelites. Well, three months later, David moved the ark, but this time it was carried like it was supposed to be. And then God was able to bless him. You're just moving into a beautiful new place. My brothers and sisters, do you want God's blessing? I would repeat to you what Hudson Taylor said uh, regarding uh, mission work, but it applies to us here as well. He said, God's work done God's way will always have God's blessing. God's work done God's way will always have God's blessing, or I think the word he actually used was God's provision. Now, turn to Second Chronicles chapter 5. Now, Second Chronicles chapter 5. Second Chronicles chapter 5. It says there, Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they'd come out of Egypt. Okay? Nothing was the ark except the tablets of stone. I found this most interesting quotation. The ark and the tabernacle on earth contained the two tables of stone upon which were inscribed or written God's law. The ark was merely a receptacle for the tables of the law, and the presence of these divine precepts are what gave it value and sacredness. That which was valuable was not the gold. That which was sacred was not the beauty. It was actually that which was contained within. Did you hear me? The ark, as beautiful as it was, made of pure gold, had no significance apart from the law that was within. Did you hear me? Above there was the mercy seat, you know, indicating God's awareness of our need of mercy, but that which gave value was that which was within. So I want to ask you a question. Where do we find the law in each of the temples? In the tabernacle, Obviously, it was in the ark. That was where it was, along with uh, Aaron's budding rod and the pot of manna. Two things that were very significant for that time. In Solomon's temple, it was there in the ark without anything else. What about in the second temple? Was that second temple missing something because it lacked an ark? 
No, because Jesus would come who was the lawgiver. He was the embodiment of what the law was all about. Because the law is what? A precept of God's character. So when Jesus came along, that temple was blessed as much as the first tabernacle. In fact, uh, God told the people through Haggai that actually that temple would be greater and the greaterness, so far as the ark was concerned, was Jesus. Now you probably can anticipate my next question. What makes the temple of the heart beautiful? It's the law, you know, lived out by Jesus in our hearts. Did you hear me? It's not how nicely we look coming to church or how well the, the, you know, the parking lot is cleared. It's what the people bring with them in their hearts. That's what the people bring with them in their hearts. I've always been fascinated by this transition. When Jesus came, he was the light of the world. For example, John 8, verse 12. And I'll read these verses for you. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus was the light of the world. But in John 9, verse 5, he said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, As long as I am here, I am the light of the world. And Jesus even made the statement in John 12, 35, a little longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light. But he said to us, and it still continues in our day, you are the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill. Jesus, who was the best light, went to heaven. And now as his representatives, we are called to be the light of the world. But we mustn't be fooled that the light of the world is based on exterior. It's based on what is within our hearts and manifested through our characters that are like Jesus. Did you hear me? What does this mean? The glory that shone in the face of Moses from reading First Selected Messages 237 was a reflection of the righteousness of Christ in the law. The law itself would have no glory, only that in it Christ is embodied. When you read the Ten Commandments, you're actually reading about Jesus who was so single-minded to obey his Father, in whom there was no covetous, there was no, you know, uh, no falsehood, no nothing of that kind of thing. Well, so they brought the ark back. And once again, God showed his approval, and really the only way we should look for God's approval. Read verse... 13 with me. Uh, chapter 5, uh, read along with me. Indeed, well, let me start back in verse 11. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves. And the Levites who were the singers, all those of Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun with their sons and their brethren, stood in the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound be heard, uh, praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals, and the instruments of music, and praise the Lord, saying, For he is good, his mercy endures forever. The house was filled with a cloud, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house. Yes. 
Anyway, we're almost done, so we may not have time to even get it. The point is, is that because they had obeyed God, the glory of God came into the house. And if we want to truly be the church that God wants us to have, it's because we have been so faithful and so desiring to have Jesus living in our hearts, shown in our obedience and our devotion to him, the glory of God will come into your church and fill that place. And you will have to pause in that which God is doing. As I was saying, if we come to God the way that they did then, seeking to be right, seeking to have that which God wanted them to have in their temple, and today it should be in the temple of our hearts, the glory of God will be with us as we worship as well. Brothers and sisters, do we love God's will enough to do God's will? Do we trust God enough to want to be his representative so that when people see us, they will know what God is like because where Jesus was the light of the world in his day, we've become the light of the world in our day. Thank you. You have just heard one of a multi-part series on the construction and dedication of Solomon's Temple given by myself, Dan Augsburger, at the Stanbro Park Church in the fall of 2015. I pray that it has been a blessing to you. You can find the rest of the presentations at my website, discipleheart.com. Let me spell that for you. Discipleheart, D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-H-E-A-R-T, discipleheart.com. Perhaps you have a question that you'd like to pose to me directly. If so, feel free to write me at pathtoprayer at gmail.com. Let me give you the spelling, P-A-T-H, number two, P-R-A-Y-E-R, pathtoprayer at gmail.com. Once again, this is Dan Augsburger. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.